the reading this morning comes from the New Testament, um, from Paul's letter to the Roman church. Um, and it's chapters 14 and some of 15. Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarrelling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another, whose faith is weak, eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to the Lord. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to the Lord. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So... Whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves, each of us should please our neighbours for their good, to build them up. 
For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to praise God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, today we finish uh, what has been a two-year series, not every week for two years, but spread out over two years on the Book of Romans. Some churches around the world have gone on for 10, 15 years, much slower than us, but there you go. And we're going to end these chapters, chapter 14 and and um, two-thirds of chapter 15. There is actually more. There's the rest of 15 and and also 16, but which is interesting and um, you could preach a sermon on it, but we decided to end it here. And it's something you could read in your own time. Chapter 16 is Paul greeting a whole lot of his co-workers or people that he wants to kind of acknowledge his um, awareness of in, Roman, in the Roman church. And one thing, one thing that, that that chapter does show us, if you're looking at it in your own time, is the central leadership role of women in the, in the Roman church. So, you know, there's, he talks about Phoebe, uh, the benefactor, and deacon, um, Priscilla, the co-worker the church planter, the teacher, the fellow prisoner. There's Mary who works hard for others, Junia, Tryphena, Tryphosa and Persis who all work hard in the Lord, uh, the mother of Rufus who's, who's shown care for others. And so much so that um, the early church father, John Chrysostom, said concerning Romans 16 um, when his com- in his commentary on that, he said, the women of that time were more zealous than lions, sharing with the apostles in their labour of preaching. And there are lots of other people mentioned in Romans 16. I'll just point you to that, and maybe we'll look at it another time, but that's not going to be preached in this series. So what are we looking at here? Chapters 14 and 15, as we're focusing on the theme of church unity, which is appropriate for an AGM, I would say. God calls his church to be united, and church unity is a sign of the Spirit working in the church. And I do believe at Mary Creek Anglican we've got good church unity. I think one of the most common things I say to people when they said, say to me, how's Mary Creek going? I say, we're going really well. I think there's a, we're a happy church, happy in the sense that there's good love shown towards each other and there doesn't seem to be huge divisions going on. Um, in fact, it's quite an encouraging church. We, we have people who share many different views on different things, on various matters, and yet we get along in love and harmony mutually supporting each other. But the thing is, you can't ever be complacent with unity. 
Churches can be the best of community and they can also be the worst. In my role as area dean, I conduct reviews of local clergy. Uh, This is a diocesan role that I have. And in doing this, I've heard some horror stories from churches, not far from us, where there's disunity, where there is such horrible treatment of each other, blatant attempts to inflame anger in the church. One vicar described what was going on in his church as pure evil. I mean, that's awful, isn't it? Um, On Thursday, I did my professional standards training refresher, and the lawyer, Angela, who ran the day, she... She said um, in her experience, and she's got a lot of experience work, working with churches in the, in the courts, she said that there are some people in churches who are far worse in their behaviour than anyone she'd ever met outside of the church. So we really want to guard against that, don't we, in the church? And so this extended passage is a gift because it's basically all application to us in terms of how we're to pursue unity. It doesn't really take heaps of explanation to get to the heart of what we're to do. And it's the culmination of the previous 13 chapters of the gospel, on the gospel. The gospel should produce the conditions that are talked about in in this passage. It should produce the conditions that bring about unity. And Paul's promoting the central ethic of Christian love, expressing itself in mutual obligation. The only thing is that the Roman church had experienced some disunity. Paul seems to have this second-hand information most likely passed on from the people mentioned in chapter 16, that indicated a fragile church. Uh, You might remember in some of my summaries of the book of Romans, um, there was uh, an expulsion of the Jews from Rome in 49 AD and then they returned again in 54 AD. And this included the Jewish Christians. And some um, historians and theologians think that this might have caused problems for the Roman church especially around the issue of Torah observance. So the Jewish Christians were still conscientious about keeping the Torah. And so there was a danger in in the Roman church. We're not talking about one congregation, we're talking about several. At least five churches are mentioned in um, chapter 16 of Romans. The the issue seems to be on ethnic lines. But, But Paul had lots of experience with dealing with churches who had ethnic division and who'd had... Um, division over different issues. So he he was pretty used to this. He's not shocked about this. And he could see a potential problem coming in the church in Rome, and he didn't want it to inflame into a full-blown riot because he was on his way there, and he wanted to arrive into a harmonious church. So he wanted to ensure unity. And his main message to the church in Rome is that they have one Lord Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all believers. Therefore, they should welcome each other, just as Jesus had welcomed them. He teaches them that what true Christian freedom and tolerance looks like is based on their relationship with Jesus and their love for God and for each other. So I've got four words to describe Paul's teaching here. The four words are conscience, diversity, peace and flexible. So let's look at the word conscience. First of all, Paul says, allow people to use their conscience. If you want to pursue unity, allow people to use their conscience in your church. Especially with the issue of what he calls disputable matters. He sees that in the church there are what he calls first order matters and then there are disputable matters, which are second order. 
For Paul, things are, that are of first importance for the Christians it is the gospel that he's been teaching through the book of Romans. This is of first order. It is the fact that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that he rose from the dead to give us new life, as he writes in 1 Corinthians 15. So if anyone came into the church to distort this gospel that Paul has been defending, he opposes them. And he teaches church members to stay away from them, from those who deliberately try and cause trouble with false teaching. In Romans 16, verse 17, he says, Watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. Perhaps they taught that Jesus wasn't really the Son of God or that you had to be circumcised to be saved. But then there are these second-order issues, issues that weren't interfering with the gospel, such as how much you observed Jewish holidays, or how much you observed the food laws, or what your attitude to alcohol was. With those issues, Paul said you should use your own conscience. It was between you and God. Look at verse 5. It says, One person considers one day more sacred than another, another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Paul has his own convictions about these things. But he didn't say that everyone in the Roman church had to be on his team or agree with him about that. In Romans 14, 22, he writes, So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Now, it's not that disputable matters are not important. After all, some of them concern how we conduct our lives. And this is why Paul continues in verse 22 with these words. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin, but each one of us is responsible directly to God on such matters. So when it comes to these second-order issues, issues like whether you believe that infants can be baptised or whether you believe in what's called creedal baptism, that you have to be able to say that you believe in a certain creed to be baptised, whether you believe in that or whether you believe that uh, Christians should be allowed to use the charismatic gifts of speaking in tongues and the gift of prophecy and healing or whether you believe that those things aren't used anymore or whether you believe that um, women can lead churches and preach in churches or whether you believe that women shouldn't lead uh, churches and preach in churches or whether you believe hell is eternal or whether you believe in what's called an annihilation. Uh, These are all issues which you could call as disputable matters, um, secondary issues, not that they're not important but they're not central to your salvation. Um, They're very personal issues for many people but they're probably not first order issues. Now, obviously, these can be, this can be debated and different churches will have a different understanding of what is primary and secondary. And I'll even say there are some churches that don't have the concept of secondary issues. They just say everything's a primary issue, which I think leads to slightly cultish kind of behaviour. You can, you can be saved and hold to all these, any of these views that I've just listed earlier and be within the realm of orthodoxy. But if you say scripture is not inspired by God or that there is no such thing as the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, one God, or that Jesus is not fully man and fully divine, 
or that Jesus did not physically rise from the dead, then you're interfering with what Paul's talking about as, well, he, he doesn't use this phrase, but this idea of um, first-order issues. These, these issues are not disputable in Paul's mind. That, that puts you outside of orthodoxy. You've walked away from the gospel that Paul has been teaching in the book of Romans. These are all first-order issues. And that's why they appear in the creeds. So when we say the creeds, these creeds have been worked on for, you know, centuries um, and decided upon, you know, over 1,500 years ago. So that's a good way to test is your idea, your theological idea of primary or secondary order. That's one way you can check it. So to sum up this point, to promote unity in the church with these disputable second-order issues, allow people to use their conscience. The second word is diversity. So Paul says to embrace diversity. It follows that if you're promoting unity in the context of different theological opinions, uh, we are not to judge or despise people who think differently to us, but rather welcome one another. Embrace the diversity. It's not simply that Paul wants people to be tolerant because he's saying a good Christian is someone who is tolerant of other people, like some daggy middle-class person. Rather, he's making an argument based on the lordship of Christ. It's actually a solid theological argument. Look at verse 4. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. People belong to the Lord Jesus. He will be their judge. It's not for you to judge. We are to be gentle and generous towards each other despite your differences. And this is especially true for those in the church who, what he says, are strong in their faith. They should be generous towards who are weaker in their faith. He uses his language of strong and weak in this passage. Now, the, the translation of strong and weak can be a bit misleading because he's not necessarily talking about more mature and less mature. Rather, the weak are those who are very conscientious in their, and easily troubled um, in their faith. And this can happen uh, so in, in the Roman church, especially for the Jewish community, who are, very, who are, you, who are used to the, keeping the law and the, are very sensitive about um, the idea of questioning that. But it was the Gentiles who are put, put in this camp of being the strong because they're pretty relaxed and they're able to, oh, yeah, we can move on from the Torah, it doesn't matter. So it, sort of, there's a kind of a strength in that. They're not worried about the food laws anymore. Um, they're not, you know, oh, you can have some wine, it doesn't matter, you know, it's, it's, it's fine. On the Jewish holidays, the Gentiles are out there, you know, doing whatever they want to do, they, they're not too fussed. So this kind of appearance within the Roman church of the strong and the weak, and Paul's saying to the strong in the church, don't, you know, don't, don't be judgmental towards the weak, don't get in their way, embrace them. Peter Adam puts it um, in, the, in his book on the Book of Common Prayer, he says, um, if I'd been writing Romans 14... I would have told those who were weak in their faith and still kept special days to sort themselves out and to know that they are justified by grace through faith, not by keeping special days of Jewish practice. Paul, on the other hand, told the strong in faith to accept the weak in faith and the weak in faith to accept the strong in faith. Both the strong and the weak are answerable to God, not to each other. So we must allow people to act differently in matters that don't contradict the gospel. Uh, they had the issue in the, in the Roman church of whether or not you should eat meat. Some can eat any meat, whereas others' conscience 
would only allow them to eat vegetables. Some Jews went vegetarian as a way to easily keep the food laws in the Torah. Much of the meat uh, around that time in Rome was pork and was forbidden. And a lot of the meat sold in the markets had been offered to idols as a sacrifice. The Gentile Christians, yeah, we're pretty cool and progressive. We can eat food offered to idols. It doesn't matter because what matters is the gospel. You know, you can imagine it being that. I can imagine being like that myself. I don't care where it came from. It's just meat. But for the Jews, it, it broke the law. So Paul, Paul's rule of love applies here and the embracing of diversity just because your conscience is relaxed doesn't mean you should despise or judge those whose consciences are sensitive. And we're to allow some difference in our church, differences of opinion in, the, in, our, in our churches. And that's what the Roman church had to do. And we do have a lot of diversity in our church. And I'm okay with that. It's healthy to a point. It can go too far uh, sometimes, but um, I'm healthy with that. And I, I believe in being a theological peach. So that's what I believe in. Soft on the outside and hard on the inside. I, I have convictions that I hold to that I, you know, I believe are, are fundamental to being a Christian and I, I hold on to that and that's my kind of like the, you know, the pip in the middle of the, the peach. You can't you try and bite one of those things, you'll break your teeth. You know. But on the outside, I want to be a peach. I want to be softer. Not soft in the sense that I'm an easy pushover, but soft in the sense that... Um, you know, I'm welcoming of other people's ideas and, and I, I want to be a listener, gentle. Paul is teaching the church in Rome and teaching us to be peaches in that sense. Thirdly, he says to promote peace and edification. And that's, that's a way you get unity in your church. Verse 19, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Now, this should be the motto of every AGM. It should be the motto of every church meeting, every synod meeting. It should be the verse that is read out at the start of every Anglican synod. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. It should be the key verse for every community group. As you look at each other in the eye, remind yourself of what Paul says in this verse 19. To not do what Paul is saying here is to behave in a destructive way that's going to tear down the church. And if you have a hobby horse, what you should do is get off it. Don't try and fight for your one issue. Fight for mutual peace and edification, Paul says. That's what really matters. Make friends with people at church who are not like you. It's a bit of a theme we've had this year, isn't it? In, in your, make, fr make friends with people who are not like you in your thinking. Do what you can to build them up. Don't just try and... Um, spout your ideas to everyone, but encourage them. Think of them and not yourself. A church that does that will have rock-solid unity. Uh, I mentioned earlier about my role as area dean, and one aspect of that role is that we get the clergy together each month um, and we have a church service or a Bible study, and then we have a meal together, a lunch together. We just had it last Thursday, actually. We, we met at um, St. Jude's in... Where is it? That way. St. Jude's uh, in Carlton and all the, uh, most, a lot of the clergy in the Melbourne Deanery, where I'm the area dean, which is the inner city, came there to see their new building. And then we went across to Trotters for lunch. And John Forsyth, the vigor there, read uh, the Bible to, to us and we had a, sort of a, a loose Bible study along the way. And in this group, you have people of all church variations, clergy from all shapes and sizes. 
Everything from uh, St. Peter's Eastern Hill, which is opposite St. Pat's Cathedral, which is a flagship liberal Catholic church. That's the way it's described in the Anglican jargon. All the way through to City on a Hill, uh, which is a flagship conservative evangelical church that looks like a Pentecostal church in its form. There's huge diversity. You know, you've got you know, men with full black outfits on and the white collar that goes all the way around through to, you know... 25-year-olds with ripped jeans and, you know, checkered shirts and hair that goes like that, you know. Now, the positive thing about these meetings is that for most of the clergy, we look past our differences and try and encourage each other. At the end of the day, we're all trying our best to serve Jesus in the way that we think best. Church denominations and church congregations start to fracture when people stop talking in an edifying way to each other when they stop pursuing peace in the conversations. So I challenge you not just to be a tolerant person. Anyone can be tolerant, but be a person who pursues peace and understanding with people. This week, pick a person from church who thinks completely different to you on various issues and try and pursue peace and edification with them. In social media, always post and comment in such a way to promote peace and edification. Build people up. Don't pour fuel on the outrage fire. Cool the conversation down. Assume a posture of humility. So Paul says, allow people to use their conscience, embrace diversity, pursue peace and mutual advocation. And lastly, you've got to be flexible. To promote unity in the church, we need to learn not just to uh, tolerate and encourage each other, but actually be a bit flexible. We are not just to please ourselves, he says in chapter 15, verse 1. Rather, in chapter 15, verse 2, each of us should please our neighbours for their good, to build them up. In doing so, we act in imitation of Christ who, verse 3, did not please himself. So when the New Testament calls Christians to unity, it usually includes a call to humility. Christ-like flexibility means putting your opinion aside and accommodating others. Christ-like flexibility is about saying, my preference is this style of liturgy and music, but I can see this other style of liturgy and music encourages others, so I'm going to be flexible. Christ-like flexibility is saying, this decision is not convenient for me, but I'm going to accommodate it because it suits other people. So, to summarise, use your conscience and allow others to use their conscience. Embrace diversity, pursue peace and mutual edification and learn to be flexible. Let me read out this famous prayer from chapter 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.